Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton along with Dr. Jenna Lejeune. Hello, Jenna. Hello. So nice to see you again. This is the first time we've been able to speak since you went on silent retreat. Yes. Okay. So can you just give us a little background on how it went? Yeah. Did you drive yourself crazy? (laughs) Did you really give up your phone? (laughs) Yes, I really did give up my phone. That was not the hard part. Um, Yeah, so it was my first um, long retreat like that. And I would say it was probably one of the best things I've ever done as far as like personal growth things. And as a therapist, I've done a fair amount of personal growth stuff. So it was really, really incredible. Just amazing. Do they give you any instruction on what to do when your monkey mind starts going out of... Yeah, so yeah. it's silent in that none of the retreat and none of the yogis speak or read or write or look at each other even. It's really this very internal process. But there is a teacher there who's guiding the meditation, so she gives you instruction. And And this was a particular focus on the four Brahma Viharas, so things like um, developing loving kindness and compassion and equanimity. Um, wow. So. That's amazing. And do they help you move with your body too so that you don't have all this like, because I see words as energy and if you don't get them out. (laughs) So do you get to walk or do yoga or anything? No yoga. I mean, you, you could do yoga if you had a break, but it was periods of 45 minutes of sitting meditation and then a half an hour of walking meditation, then sitting, then walking. How nice. Yeah. Yeah. So it It was amazing. I would really highly recommend it to folks. That's really great. Well, we're going to take a hard right pivot from that yes. because um, I want to talk about... We won't be silent Right. <laughs> I want to talk about the intersection of mental health and the law. And I met a young man who I was very, very impressed by, Mike Schmidt, who's in studio today, who is running for district attorney of Multnomah County. And in talking with Mike about his background, I thought, oh, I think more people should hear this around how people who work within the law experience uh, people who are in psychological distress. So mm-hmm. welcome to the studio, Mike. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. First of all, I think you might be one of the youngest candidates I've ever met for DA position, right? Are you, like, historically, or are you kind of in the younger younger realm? On the younger realm, 38 yeah. years old. You have also have a very young face. I'm just going to say that. And also, everybody looks really young to me now. <laughs> <because>. <laughs> but you've been in law for a long time. So talk to us a little bit about your background. Yeah, yeah. Well, I first got started uh, as a high school teacher. Uh, and that was my first introduction to seeing the criminal justice system and how it interacts with folks. Uh, I taught high school down in New Orleans, uh, eighth and ninth graders, social studies. Um, and, you know, and through my experience working with them and seeing their lives, you know, they were witnesses to crime. They were victims of crime themselves. Um, they were children of incarcerated parents. Uh, and sometimes they ended up being defendants, uh, you know, and involved in the criminal justice system. Uh, so I got to have amazing conversations with them and realize and actually see firsthand how it changes the way that they learn and, mm-hmm. and how they even approach and can come to school to be receptive to learning. Yeah. So that was my first experience. Because oftentimes I think movies do it, the criminal justice system does it, it wants us to have a bias against people who do bad things. So as a young teacher, how did you have to undo that training that we get? There is a kind of like a systematic way about saying the villain, the, the criminal, those prisoners. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I learned a lot uh, from my students. I mean, clearly I got to see them as 
children in my classroom mm. and, and learning and asking questions or being shut down and, and shutting themselves off from everybody else. So that was my experience. So when I got to hear their stories of being involved in the criminal justice system and then think, you know, step back myself and think, how would I have perceived them if I didn't know them as a student? Mm. And it was completely different. Um, and so that was kind of one of my entrees into thinking differently about um, how we see people in society. And like you said, othering uh, yeah. people. One of the things that, that I was so struck by was like his perspective taking and right. psychological that's flexibility. Was, that's right? exactly was what just, I was just thinking there. Yeah. 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 It's so early. Yeah. I was just thinking that as you as you were talking, Mike, about. You know, in this on this podcast, we've had these conversations about the importance of being able to develop develop this flexible perspective taking quality. And it isn't that you stop seeing somebody as I love how you put it, uh, for example, a defendant or somebody who's involved in the criminal justice system. But that you are able to see them as more than that. So it can, you can have this more complex, rich picture of them as this full human being versus what we tend to do is when we other somebody, they become a caricature. All they mm-hmm. are is a criminal or a whatever. Yeah. Um, could, if I, could I share an anecdote? Yes, please. So it, speaking of that mental flexibility so early on my my students we were i was trying to be the history teacher and reading howard zinn and and teaching them you know the woke people's history of the united states <laughs> and so i posted all the pictures of the presidential the presidents from from the history of the united states and all my students were black uh, and so i said to them you know do you notice anything that these people all have in common you know expecting them to say men and they're white and they're old and you know just trying to get all that out right and that didn't come up. And they said old and, and men, they got that, but not white. And so I brought that up to them. I said, well, don't you realize that, you know, they're all white? And my students said, no, they're not. And I was like, uh, what do you mean? They're like, Bill Clinton's not white. And I was like, you're going to have to unpack that for <laughs> yeah. me uh, and explain this. And their sense at a young age of, of race and, and ethnicity had a lot more to do with how people cared about their community. Wow. And so they explained wow, to me that cool. he can't be white because he cares about black people. Oh, wow. And then my students immediately turned that on me and they're like, well, you're not white. And I was like, well, technically I am. <laughs> yeah. I, I identify as a white male. Uh, and they said, well, then why are you here? Uh, and I said, well, I'm, I'm here because I want to, you know, teach in this community. But they're like, but you care about us. So mm-hmm. you must have a grandmother or somebody who isn't white. Wow. And their just their perception and mental flexibility exactly. around seeing me yeah. as wow. how I thought they would perceive me was yeah. not at all how they perceived me. Wow, Absolutely. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and even that, like that ability to break out of their story of, well, the only white people don't care about me. And so therefore you must not be a white person. Like how beautiful is that to be able to kind of break down that story a little bit? So from there you go into your first uh, law. Well, you go to law school, of course, and spend a lot of time doing that. Where'd you yeah. go to law school? Lewis and Clark. Here in yeah. Portland. And then your first job is assistant DA? Yep. As okay. a, yep, exactly. I interned as a as a district as a uh, CLS, they call him a student uh, a deputy district attorney, and then got hired on. So I will not name any names, but I will say that the office of the district attorney has a lot of people who are really rigid, really hard nosed, and they do not take this sort of psychological uh, perspective taking that you do. How did you get along in that office? 
You know, uh, I got along well, uh, and, and I think that's true. Uh, that flexibility is not built into the law or the way that we do things, um, but the people in there care a lot about their community and safety. Yeah. Um, and so it wasn't hard to find people that were trying to do their best, but they were stuck in the system, the rigid system that they were working in, um, which did eventually kind of grate on me to a, a point where I was like, you know, I want to do something differently because I went into the system thinking about how I want to be the change uh, internally and hope that I could be the prosecutor that thought about his students when they came in front of them. Uh, and so eventually that inflexibility of our criminal justice system is what uh, led me to, to seek to do something external to the office. So one of the things that you've done is said, I will be, if elected, I will be one of the few DAs in the country who will never use the death penalty. Why? So many reasons. Um, so in my last six years, uh, I've really been uh, I've been the director of a state agency that looks at the criminal justice system as a whole. So not from a prosecutor's perspective, but from the justice system's perspective. And so in doing that, we use re uh, research and data to see, are we making a difference? Are we improving public safety? Are we fixing these issues? And when I hold that lens up to the death penalty, it's clear that it's a policy that's failed. Hmm. Uh, it doesn't keep us any more safe. Uh, you look at states that don't have the death penalty and states that do, and there's not a, a difference in the murder rate or anything else. Uh, there's been a lot of research that shows that it's not a deterrent. Then you look at the history of the death penalty in this country, and you see that all kinds of bias creep into how it's been administered. Um, racial bias, bias against people with diminished capacity. Mm. Um, and so you start to think about fairness and justice and realizing that it can be applied differently to different people based on factors that shouldn't be considered, mm. even uh, you know when it's not intended to be that way. Uh, and so then you look at the cost. It's way more costly. Uh, to go through that process and all the, the appeals process, the appeals process yeah. over and over and over again. Uh, I've talked to uh, victims uh, who's had who have had family members that have been murdered and then uh, had prosecutors seek the death penalty on their behalf uh, and learn from their experience and their sentiments that the death penalty didn't give them the closure that they thought it would. Mm. I had talked to a warden, uh, a, a superintendent from one of Oregon's prison, uh, Frank Thompson, uh, the only person to preside over executions in the last 60 years here in Oregon. And he talked to me about the transferred trauma that was put on him and his workers who had to train for months in how they were going to, in a premeditated way, end the life of another human being mm. and what that has done to him and, and the folks that he worked with. So when if we were whiteboarding this out and putting pros and cons, mm -hmm. the cons list is extremely, extremely long. So one, con um, one pro list that I've heard, and I'd, I'd like your response to this, is that as a prosecutor, you actually have a tool to, to encourage people to take a deal that is short of the death penalty, but it is that bargaining chip. How do you respond to that? Yeah, it's accurate. Uh, it's absolutely accurate. Yeah. It's a leverage point uh, yeah. to get people to plea. Uh, and there are a lot of things in our criminal justice system that act as leverage points to get people to plea. Uh, holding somebody in pretrial incarceration in jail before their case yeah. uh, is a great way to get them to plea as soon as they possibly can to get out. Um, mandatory minimum sentences, another way that you can leverage punishment in our system to get people to plea. Uh, and so those kinds of things create efficiencies 
for the criminal justice system to move expeditiously. Yeah. Uh, but when I think of justice, I'm not thinking of how fast can we move these things along. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about what's the right thing to do. Uh, so absolutely, pledging not to seek the death penalty is taking a tool out of uh, the prosecutors, my own tool belt, in order to get people to move through the criminal justice system. But I think that if somebody has done something that warrants uh, life without the possibility of parole, uh, we ought to say that, and we say it in court, and we take that case to trial. Hmm. I want to move uh, into the spectrum of mental health, which is why our podcast exists, and um, talk about how especially people with mental health um, behaviors that end up causing problems in our society end up being housed in our jails. And now I think the last uh, census that I saw suggested that as many as 70 percent of people being housed in jail have a mental illness. It, is that Does that run a about true to your stats and and what it, what is your thinking on that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, I was communicating with our director of corrections here in the state, uh, Colette Peters, the other day, and I asked her that exact question. I said, "What is the percentages? Do you think?" Uh, and she put women at seventy percent and men around fifty percent. Oh wow! Uh, so it's hugely uh, a big factor, and not only people incarcerated in prisons, uh, but then when I talk to the sheriffs uh, who run our jails in this in this state. Um, they see the exact same things. Uh, And so we've been working on uh, this at the state level. Uh, We did some research, um, and although we knew that mental illness was a big factor into who's being held uh, in custody, uh, we really hadn't um, run the numbers, so to speak. And so what we did was, for the first time ever in Oregon's history, we took uh, jail data, and we looked at how many people were coming in and out of our systems on kind of that revolving door, just arrest and release, arrest and release. And we saw that 9% of all the people booked in our jails in the year, so about 5,000 people, they used 30% of our jail beds. Wow. So they were outsized uh, for their population how much of our jail they're using. We then merged that with Medicaid data. And we saw that those folks were 150% more likely than their peers to be in our emergency departments and 650% more likely to have substance use disorder, uh, mental illness, and especially most likely frequently the co-occurring of Mm -hmm. of both of those things. So Mm -hmm. is this also intersecting with our mentally ill homeless population? Same people. Um, I think it was Brian. Was it Brian who told us that he has a friend who has schizophrenia and every November he does a crime that right rises just to the level where he can stay in jail for three to four months. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I mean yeah. there's some some s- smart survival part of that, but it's a huge toll on a system that's already overburdened, correct? Oh, well, oh, and absolutely. if you also think about it as, you know, one way to look at this is our prisons and jails are the largest mental health providers in the state. Yeah. And so one way to look at that is, okay, I need mental health treatment. That's right. And so, you know, one, the place I get my mental health treatment is in the prisoner jail. It's just that that's a really poor place, both in terms of effectiveness and efficacy and like cost savings to be providing mental health treatment. Oh, it's it's incredibly expensive right. uh, to to try to meet people's needs that way, and it's not effective. It's, right. it's not a therapeutic environment, <laughs> yeah. and the people who work there are not trained for that, right? You know, yeah. and so they themselves are trying to, and they see this. I've talked to people who are working in jails who experience people who are. 
you know, attending to internal stimuli and, and doing really horrible things, uh, you know, to themselves and in the cell. And yeah. they are, they don't They're like They're traumatized by it as well. Sure. So what, who are the minds and, and what is the role of the DA in figuring this out? What systems can actually impact a different way of doing it? Because I want people to understand from your policy, if you were to be elected, all the way up to the arrest of this person, all the way up to where they're sent, how much impact can you have? Yeah, you really can. So the district attorney's office doesn't have the resources, right? We're not a a provider of services. So we are essentially a a gatekeeper uh, and we get to decide who's going to be charged with a crime or not charged with a crime. Okay. Uh, And so I think taking into consideration people, how they're coming into the system, we can decide is what we're trying to accomplish here with this person is going through the criminal justice system the best way to do that. And unfortunately, frequently, uh, our criminal justice system has been used as a way to ration health care, yeah. mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. just fundamentally makes mm-hmm. zero sense. Right. Uh, and so I think the role that the district attorney can play is they can say, look, what are we trying to accomplish by arresting this person and prosecuting them? And if the answer is we want them to be healthy, we want them to be reconnected with the community, maybe we think about not prosecuting and connecting them with services instead. Well, so we have drug court. Why don't we have mental health court? We do. But it, but it, but often those people end up in jail anyway. So what's happening? Yeah. So mental health court, um, is a uh, what they call a, a specialty court or a problem-solving court um, where you have case managers and people connecting them to services, and it's a high-intense um, supervision-type population. Um, it's a small number of people that can be served in that court. Do you have to be really, really sick to be able to? I get it. Yep, so then exactly. they're often sent to the state hospital. They're either yeah. that or the level of crime that they have committed does not rise to the seriousness enough for the criminal justice system to put them into that resource. Yeah. The, the balance that I'm always really interested in is if you don't prosecute them um, and and for, for the public at large who actually are taxpaying and want order and don't want to have crimes committed against their cars or against their person. How do you balance those two competing interests? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not enough to just say, well, if we prosecute you, your mental illness is going to get worse, so we're not going to prosecute. Right. You need to have a plan and people around the table to say, okay, if I'm not going to prosecute, what is the plan? Yeah. How are we going to get this person connected? Right. Um, You can't just pull back uh, the one part of the system that is getting people into healthcare and into treatment. I think we should look at alternatives. Um, for example, down in Eugene, uh, they have a program called Cahoots, uh, which is about sending people, uh, caseworkers and social workers out to meet with people on the streets instead of police officers. Yeah. Directly so getting them into that system. Yeah. So I think it's about being a partner at the district attorney's office. We can't just say, hey, we're never going to prosecute this type of case anymore and because you know people are mentally right. ill. But like, what is the plan and what are we really trying to accomplish? When you're prosecuting somebody for criminal trespass or disorderly conduct, you're not really trying to punish somebody for one or two days in jail for that action, right? You're trying to resolve the situation that the business owner, that the homeowner called the police for. Right. They're not looking for one day of jail as punishment. They're yeah. looking for a solution to this problem. Yeah. But what we give them is one day in jail as punishment. Yeah. So that's what we need to break is we need to say to ourselves, 
just because the criminal justice system was called, is there a better system to handle this that will actually get to fixing this problem instead of just saying, well, you know, the train's going down the tracks. Once we arrest them, we must file a police report. Once we file a police report, we must put them in jail. Once we put them in jail, we must prosecute them. You know, let's break that chain and just say, what are we trying to accomplish and then go from there. So, Jenna, were you aware of the plan to try to move a lot of mental health services and a lot of the homeless population to Wapato? It is the, our big facility that was never used. Yes. And um, it, ha- it has phenomenal kitchen space and great oven space. And if you reimagined it, I was thinking this makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, there's I want to speak to you about this because it seems to me that there's a lot of people who make their... Their jobs are to support a homeless population that lives in the city that do not want the status quo changed. How do we bring them to the table to say, we have to, we all hands on deck here. Like you can't just, you can't just be um, fighting for your own job when we're trying to solve this problem. Because I like the idea of private public partnerships. I love the idea of everybody working within the system. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. My experience at the Criminal Justice Commission, one of the ways that you bring people along on things like this is showing research that shows this is promising, this will work, and then tracking outcomes and data and then showing results. I think if you're not tracking and you can't demonstrate the results, people are not going to get on board. Uh, And so I think for this situation, it's exactly right. We need a solution. Uh, right now. Police officers, when I talk to them, they say, I don't want to take this person to jail. Right. And I can't take them to the emergency department because that's where I just arrested them. The emergency department just right. trusts, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. Uh, and uh, Disability Rights Oregon put out a great report called, uh, I believe, The Unwanteds, uh, where it talked about police officers being trapped in that situation of having nowhere to go. Uh, so I think we need to articulate clearly what the problem is, yeah. uh, how we believe that what we're going to do is based on research and will work, yeah. and then track uh, the data and outcomes to show that we're making improvements. It does feel to me that part of the problem is lack of facility, lack of space. And we all, I know I know the history of when the state hospital was emptied and they promised community care for everyone and then... Private organizations don't make money off of community care, so all those closed and the money didn't follow. But we don't have places for people that are in this subset of society. We don't have shelter and we don't have care and we don't have a system right now that's set up for them. And so I love the fact that you're thinking about systems and and holding organizations accountable But I want to know how much of a mindset you have to change of the person who passes a mentally ill homeless person and thinks that's just disgusting that that's on my street because, boy, I hear from them all the time. Yeah. You know, I same, right? When I sit down with somebody and I say, hey, I'm Mike Schmidt. I'm running for district attorney. They say, what are you going to do do about the homeless? Exactly right. And, you know. I actually spent uh, a couple years uh, walking around the streets uh, every Wednesday morning before work, handing out hot chocolate and coffee to people uh, and just having conversations. I was a board member of a group called Home PDX, and that's their mission, just to have conversation with people on the street. Yeah. And so I, I have that experience where what I saw living people living on the streets were it, it, as diverse a community as you would if you knocked on doors in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. That's really true. I saw people who were uh, physically 
infirmed and unable to, you know, uh, to work anymore. I saw people obviously dealing with mental illness. I saw people rolling out of their tents and going to school and going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw people who were clearly uh, addicted to different substances and drugs. Um, so it is, I think the solutions are as varied as the community is. Yeah. And so when I talk to people about that, uh, I think there is a group of people, and I've heard this term used by someone else who are um, service resistant, Yeah. you know, and, and they're just not ready or willing to engage in services. And they I, tend to also be among the people who met us. Exactly. So. And so I think that's where the criminal justice system can, can lean be. in yeah. and say, look, let's, we're going to. This is the response. We need to do something because you're unwilling to to engage in services. So that might mean jail. Uh, And that might mean giving you a period of time where you can uh, get uh, sober. And then let's start talking about what treatments we can do, like medicated assisted treatment. And let's work on transitioning you out of that setting uh, as safely and fast as we can, but then keeping you keeping uh, in touch with you, making sure you're following through. Uh, I think when we think of people who are living on the streets, you know, they tend, a lot of people tend to paint with a very broad brush. I think that group, the service resistant is a, is a smaller percentage of that population. And I think that's where the criminal justice system can use its leverage. But the rest of it, I think we really need to think about how those people, what are the things that got them there? Uh, frequently uh, for women, it's uh, domestic violence. Yep. Uh, for kids and youth, uh, it's uh, because they're, for whatever reasons, not accepted at their home. Uh, transgender uh, children are, yeah. are are more likely to end up on our streets. So let's start thinking about what are the things that they need to be successful. And I think most of the time our answer isn't going to be jail uh, or prison. It's going to be let's get you connected to, to some help. That's awesome. Jenna, do you have any other questions of Mike? I think the thing that I'm most struck by as Mike's talking is, again, I'm kind of going back to that idea of perspective taking. And you've had several examples of it in our conversation. So starting with your students at school and then them seeing you as, well, you can't be a white person. But even when you were talking about the other folks at the DA's office, like that ability to sort of see well, it's, it's not that they are an inflexible human being and I'm this flexible human being and we're two different people. It's they're in this system and it's useful to kind of give people the benefit of the doubt. It's just a more useful posture to say, well, probably you are not radically different than me. Your context is probably radically mm. different than yeah. mine. And so how can we work to change the context rather than you're just this different, broken person than I am. And so that's a lot of what I'm hearing you talking about. Yeah. You know, you're so right. When I left that office, I was uh, pretty much the same as everybody else who was working that office. I knew some things weren't quite setting with me, but at the same time, I viewed things very similarly. I've now gotten to spend six years traveling the country. I got to go to Norway and see how they put what their prison system looks like. It's mm. very different. Very yeah. different. Yeah. I got mm-hmm. to go to Angola down in Louisiana, different on a different extreme. Yes. Yeah. I've been up into Vancouver, British Columbia and looked at how they deal with harm reduction and people who are using drugs and, and how they have a different approach. Uh, I sit on a couple national boards and so I get to talk to my fellow directors across the country. So I've had the benefit of all of that, mm-hmm. which is why I've been able to kind of move my perspective on these things. So I think it's my job and incumbent upon me if elected the BDA is to bring that into the office as much as I can and get them to the place where they've been exposed to some things and they're thinking about it differently. Is it going to be helpful or hurtful that so many um, people are coming out to vote for you? 
<laughs> on both sides. To vote for me, that's very helpful. <laughs> yeah, right. As long as they're coming out to vote for Mike, then yeah. it's all going to be good. Uh, you know, I mean, I think that's uh, it's something that we work with the the campaign consultants yeah. in figuring out. The hard part for me is, is really, I think you can tell I have a lot of ideas uh, and a very thought through uh, policy yeah. platform and agenda. Uh, and so just having the conversation, I I think that if I could sit down with 500,000 voters in Multnomah County, I'd do really well in this me election. Me too. <laughs> me too. I wish they had a debate for you. Somewhere, maybe we'll ask your opponent to come in. <laughs> We've had one already. Oh, have you really? Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah very soon. Uh, Are you on completely opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of how you view criminal justice and its application here? So there's three of us, uh, yeah. three people running, and uh, I think we are all along the spectrum. Oh, you are? If we were putting ourselves uh, left to right, I'd say that I'm probably occupying the leftmost lane. Well, you're in a good town to do that. Thank you. Mike Schmidt, really, really enjoyed talking with you today, Mike. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Jenna, so good to have your voice back. Thank thank you for coming back. I was afraid we were going to lose you to the monks. No way, no way. And yeah, thanks, Mike, for coming in and also for the good work that you're doing. Thank you.